now with technological change, you have to be a lifelong learner. You cannot just say, oh, I'm going to learn when I'm young and I'm going to hope that whatever I learn will last 50 years. That's not possible because knowledge is shifting very quickly. Technology makes knowledge obsolete, obsolete much faster than in the past. And we have to constantly reinvent ourselves. Hey, it's Zach here and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I am here today with Maro Guillen, who is a best-selling author. He's the vice dean of Wharton School, where he's the professor of management, and he's the vice dean for the MBA for Executives program. He's also a sought-after speaker and consultant who specializes in the intersection of demographic, economic, and technological developments. And very specific to today's conversation, you're also the author of the upcoming book, The Perennials, the mega trends creating a post-generational society where you discuss why we need to embrace a post-generational mindset in order to live longer, more fulfilling lives. And Mauro, it is a tremendous, tremendous pleasure to be having this conversation today. Oh, thank you. The honor is mine, Zach. Thank you for inviting me. You are more than welcome. And I got to say that just in your intro alone, I feel we could probably have a 60 to 90 minute conversation just defining all the big words. Lots and lots of big words in there that we're going to be breaking down throughout the, today's conversation. And really the narrative thread that we're going to be looking at is one that I've talked about uh, quite a bit already, which is this massive shift that we're seeing in culture, in our economy, in various industries from specialization in a very linear path where you start at the bottom of a ladder and you climb to the top. And instead, everything is just discombobulated and upside down. There's no pass and we don't understand what's going on. And you've really dug into this on a societal level. And I think you have a lot of really good ideas about how we can approach this. The place I wanna start, however, I just wanna dig right into the center of the wound. We're not gonna sugarcoat this and we're not gonna slowly tiptoe into it. I wanna start with a quote that you have on your website which is that the world as you know it is about to end 
Will you be prepared for what comes next? It's quite the bold statement to begin today's conversation with. You want to help me unpack that? Well, I think um, it is no secret that there's a lot of things going on uh, with technology, you know, robotics, artificial intelligence, the blockchain, uh, digital money. Uh, but not just that, also with uh, global powers and, uh, you know, the balance between the United States and China and other countries around the world. And uh, at the same time, we are seeing the full effects now of uh, the demographic transition, meaning the decline in fertility and the fact that we're living longer. And if that weren't enough, then we also see that uh, weather patterns have been disrupted and we have more frequent floods and with frequent hurricanes and of more intensity. So climate change is also kicking in. So, you know, we are human beings. Um, we um, tend to be uh, creatures of habit. And my point is that we need to change because the only possible response to change is change itself. That's a very bold way to look at it. The only response to change is change itself. Um, I have a, had an in-depth conversation with Brad Stolberg recently, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to anybody listening. His book is called Master of Change. And we talked mm -hmm. for 90 minutes about the mindset of how we individually approach change and all of the adversity that comes with it and the identity associations that we have with it. So I don't want anybody to think that I'm skipping over this topic, but there are so many other areas where I feel that you can be uh, tremendously valuable to this conversation. And knowing that we need to change ourselves to manage the change is something that I've talked about extensively and I'm more than welcome to do it with you as well. But what I really want to understand is how our system is constructed and where it's broken. And I want you to start by breaking down just some of these basic terminology that you have. Just in the title of your book alone, we have this term perennial, and then we have this idea of a post-generational society. Break these down into much simpler terms for all of us. Absolutely. So perennials are people who don't think or act their age. So they don't feel constrained by the stereotypes that you should only be learner learning when you're young and that you then should be working after you learn. And then at some point you should retire. And uh, the other conventional thing is that uh, attached to this is that, uh, hey, people who belong to different generations then have different lifestyles and they should be approaching the world in different than life in different ways. And I rebel against that. I think we have to uh, abandon uh, or to fight back. Uh, there's this tyranny of age that, that we're only supposed to do certain things at a given age. And I think this is uh, purely a construction. This is something that we're imagining. There are biological limits as to what we can do at different ages, but hey, we should be lifelong learners. We should be able to switch careers. We should be able to enjoy retirement in a completely different way than it is uh, you know, structured today. So that's the purpose of this book. So something tells me you and I have only talked for about maybe, you know, seven to eight minutes, but just by the look on your face and the energy that you put forward, my guess is you identify as about 25 years old. How far off am I? I am actually 23 years old. 23 uh, years old. Sorry, times, I didn't mean to overage you. Times 2.3, maybe. <laughs> I'm yeah. 58. And so I feel as young as ever. And I'm actually, I have uh, even more projects and more plans for the near future professionally but also family-wise, than I did 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. I think, you know, we live longer, but Zach, that's not the only thing. We also stay healthy much longer than in the past. So we stay, we remain in very good physical and mental shape. And it's a pity not to make the most of our lives. Uh, and, you know, increasingly people are going back to school at age 60 or 70. Increasingly people, what they're doing is 
you know, switching careers. Uh, they're um, aiming at new things. They want to essentially find fulfillment in life. And we shouldn't be constrained by age. I think that's the key. Yeah, one of the, the lessons that I've learned as I've grown older, and I, I'm very conscious to not say as I get old, because I've I've been saying for years that um, getting older is inevitable. Choosing to get old, right? That's a choice. And that's a mm-hmm. mindset. And like I said, I can just see on your exactly. face and your energy, that mindset pervades in the way that you are presenting yourself to the world, which I absolutely love. Because uh-huh. if, uh, if I had this image in my mind on paper, of, well, you know, vice dean of Wharton Business School, and he's done this, that, and the other thing, and you just picture somebody in a suit and tie and just very formal, and immediately you come out. What I love about this, anybody that's not watching this on video, you're showing up in like a white T-shirt. You're, the, the image of it's you It's not entirely is, white, though. It has well, to Okay, yeah. well, you've got a design on it, right? But what I love <laughs> about this is that the image that I would construct from who you are on paper and who I see here are two completely different things, which really shows me that you practice what you preach as far as having that perennial mindset. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I can wear a suit, and I frequently wear a suit, uh, but I can also be informal like everybody else. And uh, I think that today we agree that it would be better to actually project this uh, image of informality. Yeah, I can, I can tell you right off the bat with anybody listening to this, if they visually saw the image of you in the suit and tie, they'd say, oh, I don't think this is episodes for me, right? right. So this, right. I just think this is the perfect fit. Uh, so what I want to, a little bit of help breaking down for the audience and just for myself is I've been talking a lot about the transition that our society is making from specialization back to generalization and the way that the industrial revolution has really kind of set a very specific path for us. And that path is completely breaking down. But from your perspective, could you break down the way that the the world and society and our careers have been constructed from a generational perspective so we really understand the way that things were so we can then apply this perennial mindset going forward? So how do we break down where we are now? Well, uh, we've been in the same place for 120 years. And as you just said, that model, that way of uh, living our lives uh, is becoming very obsolete. Um, So the model is essentially that... uh, you put all of the learning at an early age, and you better learn everything that you need for the rest of your life because otherwise you've missed your opportunity to learn. And then you work. And, uh, you know, we've designed jobs in such a way that they're boring and we really don't want to work. But we're promised that golden moment in which we will retire and everything will be great. And of course, for most people, retirement is a disappointment because they are, you know, cut loose from their social contacts. And also because, uh, you know, people get bored. And they feel lonely and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, the other thing is that at work, the normal thing would be that uh, we would have a boss who is older than we are. And we would have mentors who are also older than we are. And there's no, uh, you know, allowance there for different generations really working together and having similar goals and similar aspirations. We have been very, very um, intent on essentially compartmentalizing us into generations. Uh, which I think are pure inventions, pure creations on our minds. And uh, we're supposed to behave uh, like, uh, you know, a millennial if you were born during a given period or like a baby boomer and so on and so forth. And so the book, my argument is all about breaking with all of those stereotypes, approaching life in a completely different way, uh, in a way that I think is going to be more satisfying and uh, it will lead to, uh, you know, happiness as opposed to what we have now. A lot of people are frustrated, as you know, mental illness is on the increase, especially among young people. So, um, you know, there's a better way of living our lives. 
Yeah, and nowhere is it more apparent, and it would take about 15 minutes to see this generational divide than social media. Dear mm -hmm. Lord, right? You, you can just see the divide in any of the Facebook groups or anywhere you might frequent, just like, yeah, yeah, okay, boomer, versus, ah, you know, Gen Z, they don't understand how to work. And it's just, we, we're in these little tiny compartments where we define ourselves by this generation, but there's so many things about us that are different and varied and unique, kind of this Venn diagram of the intersection of all of our experiences and skills. And like you said, we just assume, well, I'm the older, more seasoned, more experienced mentor, and you still have a lot to learn. And right. this, this drives me absolutely crazy. Something that I talked about with Eduardo Biseno uh, talking about his book, um, where he breaks down the learning mindset versus the performance mindset, which is an extension of Carol Dweck's fixed and growth mindsets. And this idea that you learn, 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 learn. And then maybe not when you graduate, you're still allowed to learn for, I don't know, two, three, four years. But nope. Now you just got to perform at a high level for the rest of your life. And exactly you're proposing right. that, that we have different cycles where it's learn, do, learn, do. So kind of break down what this what this newer model looks like so we can break free from these generational stereotypes. Exactly. These uh, fixed, uh, very rigid generational categories. And we can focus on our individuality and we open up a new universe of opportunities for a lot of people. And by the way, I didn't write this book to make successful people even more successful. I really wrote this book for people who want to improve, but also for people who right now under the uh, existing model are completely sidelined. Think about women and how difficult it is for them to follow those stages in life. Because you see that, um, what I call the sequential model of life was designed for men, not for women. And think about high school dropouts. Think about teenage mothers. Think about people who are substance abusers, but now they're recovering. They at some point made the wrong decision or they took the wrong turn or they were unlucky. And it is very hard for them to recover. For example, teenage mothers, when you uh, think about them, only 2% graduate from college. Only 2%. We don't have systems in place to allow those people who, for whatever reason, you know, had a baby too early in life uh, to recover from that uh, setback. So we need to really change the way in which we structure our lives in order to give everybody, not just the successful people, better opportunities. Yeah, and the, there's a buzzword that you said there that I think is going to be a thread that I'm going to pull for a while, which is the systems. Mm -hmm. I've talked a lot about this at an individual level, but you are deeply ingrained and have a very clear understanding of the current academic system of education that we have in this country. And uh, I don't know what the exact listings are according to U.S. News and World Report, but Wharton Business School is pretty highly regarded as one of the best places in the world if you want to learn business. But I want people to better understand the system as it is now and mm -hmm. how broken it is. Because I, I talk about this Absolutely. a lot, but I'm not, I'm not coming from a place of expertise. I'm coming from a place of observation. You're in the system. So I want you to, to help us better understand how the educational system is currently constructed and how, at least in my opinion, it's completely and totally broken. Oh, absolutely. And let me engage in self-criticism here. I think at the Wharton School, we are missing out on a big opportunity because we offer a number of degrees and all of our degrees are defined in terms of the age group that we're targeting. So undergraduate degree, graduate degree full-time, but also for working professionals who tend to be a little bit older, and then for executives. And we're not allowing those different people from different generations, different ages to actually interact with one another. So we are approaching education in the wrong way, in my view, right? And, and uh, you know, it pains me, and I hope that we change, uh, you know, soon enough to actually catch this wave. The world is moving in a different direction, and it's moving in a different direction. At, at SAC, we haven't talked about this, 
Because now with technological change, you have to be a lifelong learner. You cannot just say, oh, I'm going to learn when I'm young and I'm going to hope that whatever I learn will last 50 years. That's not possible because knowledge is shifting very quickly. Technology makes knowledge obsolete, obsolete much faster than in the past. And we have to constantly reinvent ourselves. So the world has changed so much. It has become so competitive, but also so mercurial that uh, the old model just doesn't work. It's obsolete. Yeah, this reminds me of a conversation that I had recently with my wife, who's a third grade teacher. She's been a third grade teacher for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And we've had many a healthy debate about specifically how the current educational system is designed, just in reference to the internet, but also how it really undervalues critical thinking skills, problem-solving skills. And it's still kind of in the mode of pre-internet you, uh, you know, recite and, re, you know, memorize figures and what year was the Magna Carta. And my argument is always like, I don't need to know those things anymore. I have a phone that solves those. I need to learn how to solve more complex problems, how to communicate. So we've had those debates for years. That sets the table for, imagine me sitting down and introducing my wife to ChatGPT. <laughs> she's not very technological. As, as far as her world of being a third grade teacher, she's the one that her faculty and her peers come to like, hey, how do I build a really cool slideshow presentation? And she's worked with uh, Sandra Kaplan, who's one of the, the world's uh, experts with gifted and talented education. But my wife's not really tied into the cutting edge of technology. And I sat her down with ChatGPT and she's like, I don't get it. I'm like, let me show you something. I'm going to sit down with my daughter who's in sixth grade and I want you to give me a couple of really simple instances of a character in a story so we can write like a one or two page uh, story for an assignment. She's like, well, there's a princess and a dragon named this and a witch named this. And I just, I put all that into a prompt and I had it write me like a two page story. And my wife is like, yeah. whoa, that's pretty crazy. But a student could never use that because I could tell that that's way above their, their, uh, their intellect. And yeah. I said, and I wrote a prompt that said, now write the same thing from the perspective of a third grader. Mm -hmm. And I read it back to her and she's like, Oh my God. Like she just, she could see the world change in front of her. And the yeah. next thing that I said to her is what I want you to, to, to really pull on. I said, the things that you're teaching your students now in third grade are going to be totally and completely useless by the time they graduate high school. Yeah. Am Absolutely. I, am I totally wrong? No. And you see, that is a fundamental problem of the education sector that we should be educating people for the jobs that will be in the economy, let's say in 10 years from now. Right. But we don't know what those jobs are going to be. So mm -hmm. it's a fundamental problem. And that's why I think right now, especially with all of these changes, what we need to teach our children is the ability to learn and the ability to forget, the ability to unlearn also. That's also important. Right. And as you mentioned earlier in passing, the ability to communicate very well, the ability to work in teams, emotional intelligence, the ability to negotiate, all of those skills that we normally call social skills are really, really becoming very important. And all you need to do is just go to... Uh, a jobs uh, website and see the descriptions of what companies are looking for. And you will see that they're looking for people who can work in teams, who have emotional intelligence, who can negotiate and so on and so forth. That's what they're looking for. Yeah. And the, the transition that I'm starting to see a lot, even in the entertainment industry and of all the industries, the entertainment one probably moves the slowest of any of them. I always thought that was just my intuition, but I recently had Greg McEwen on the podcast uh, mm -hmm. and he's done a lot of consulting for corporations all over the world. And he even, even he told me, he's like, dude, Hollywood is the most messed up industry I have ever worked with. So I was like, OK, I feel a little bit more vindicated. Um, but I'm starting to very slowly see the transition from hard skills to a word that I hate, 
which is soft skills, like you said, communication skills, right? Well, social skills. I think I social, skills, social skills, right? The the way that I look at it, and the, I'm basically um, you know stealing this from Simon Sinek, who's another one of the one of my kind of influencers and digital mentors. I've never connected with him, but I really I admire the work that he's doing, similar to. Adam Grant, who's a fellow colleague of yours, uh, but he talks about how he hates the term soft skills. And I like the term human skills. What are now, the skills, skills that we need? Social skills. Yep. Right. Human skills, social skills. But there's there's nothing soft about them. No, and, not at all. And actually, some of them, uh, people may think that social skills are like uh, something that uh, you are given when you're being born. But it's something that you can learn. There's a science behind it. Right. And uh, we actually try to teach those things to students and there's research about it. And there's a, a whole body of uh, knowledge backing up the pedagogy of how you help people acquire social skills, which once again are becoming of fundamental importance in the labor market. Yeah, it's something that I've talked about in other interviews. Uh, this is a, uh, a perspective that I've had for years. And I felt that most people were not on board with this, especially a lot of colleagues that I've worked with before. But it's now becoming kind of a, a necessity, which is that I've never hired based on skills or at least based on hard skills. I've mm -hmm. always hired based on character. I want to know, are you the kind of person that can problem solve? Are you the kind of person that can communicate with others or whatever it might be? I can always teach you skills, but I can't teach you character. And to me, I feel like social skills are one of those skills that they're teachable. But I'm looking for something where you have some of the like the basis of some of those skills, then I can plug in all the rest of it. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So uh, what I want to talk a little bit more about then is if somebody's listening to this and they're asking themselves, well, geez, if all my hard skills are going to be obsolete and at the speed that things are moving, I mean, God, it could be in six months, two years. Like, like you said, nobody really knows what the future of jobs looks like. Um, but I would venture to guess that no matter how much artificial intelligence takes over whatever either, you know, mundane jobs or even the, the creative type jobs, these human skills are going to be the things that separate us from the machines. How yeah. do we break this down? What are the actual skills? I know that this is something you talk about a lot or the skills of the future. Social skills is definitely an important one, but how do we get more specific? Well, uh, besides the things that we've talked already about, I think uh, we need to learn how to interact with technology. You were mentioning earlier that ChatGPT requires a skill on the part of the user. You need to understand how to follow up, right, uh, with questions so that you get to where you want. And that's why I believe that, for example, you remember last summer when, um, or a few months ago, when the uh, school district of New York City decided to ban ChatGPT mm -hmm. because they were concerned about you know, plagiarism and so on. And look, that's such a stupid decision. Everybody's going to be using AI tools at work, in the home, for everything, right? So you're better off teaching your students how to use ChatGPT than resisting it, right? Uh, it's really, really important to learn how to interact with machines, especially with computers these days. And students who don't have those skills by the time they graduate, they're going to have a very hard time finding a good job. So, so it's just the opposite, right? I'm going to tell my students when I start teaching again in, in January or February, I'm going to tell them, you can use as much ChatGPT as you want, but you better come up with good arguments in your papers and in your exam answers, because I'm going to be, you know, asking you to perform at a very high level, given that you're using ChatGPT, right? Mm -hmm. But I want them to use ChatGPT. It's a new tool. It's the same way that we began using Excel, right? Or began using pocket calculators uh, some years ago. Right. There was nothing wrong with them. They actually made us more productive. But ChatGPT now is exactly the same thing. So what I would urge people is to learn, as we were uh, mentioning earlier, 
the ability to learn. That's the capability that everybody has to have. How do you acquire that? Well, number one is have facility with numbers. Be comfortable managing numbers and abstract concepts, right? There's a number of subjects that actually prepare you for that. You can take math or you can take physics or you can take biology, all of those things. Second is learn how to read efficiently and how to write. A good writer is also a good learner, right? And by all means, develop your reading skills because it's a fundamental importance. Good good learners are good readers. So those are the kinds of things that our students should be learning. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO, Kit Perkins, creator of the Topomat. The Topomat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. It's funny because I had this crazy flashback to something that I haven't literally thought about in decades when you talked about uh, ChatGPT and the school district banning it, and then you mentioned in calculators. I remember as a freshman in high school, getting into a knockdown, drag out everything but fist fight with my algebra teacher because he refused to let us use a calculator on the exam. And I was the outspoken one that said, why would I not be able to use a calculator on my exam? I can have a calculator in my pocket anytime I want. The calculations that it's doing are irrelevant. It's me knowing the numbers to put in in the right order in the equations. That's the value of this class. He would have none of it. But I just, I would not, like, I, if you can't tell already, I never let go of an argument. It's, yeah. both a, it's both a superpower and kryptonite. And I got into really big trouble because I said there's no reason I shouldn't use it, right? And you're making the same argument about ChatGPT. No, absolutely. But that's, but Zach, your, your attitude is exactly what makes us make progress. Because as human beings, we learned at some point that we could um, create tools and use them, right, for various uh, purposes. And without using tools, and I think ChatGPT or a calculator is yet another tool, 
we would still be in the Stone Age. So given that you're entrenched in this world of academia, and I think you're on, you're on the better end and maybe not the cutting edge, but certainly the leading edge of making sure that the work that you're doing, the work that Adam is doing, the work that all of Wharton is doing is, is preparing the, the younger minds for the next generation to come. How much do we really, really think that this is going to change? Because academic institutions, political institutions, economic institutions, I want to be optimistic, but it's just things move really, really slow. So how optimistic yeah. are you that these things are actually going to change for the better? Well, I think uh, I think there's been a lot of change uh, at Wharton, as well as uh, many other uh, educational institutions in terms of using technology uh, and also in terms of remote learning. This has been a revolution in the last few years. I mean, we have now more remote students um, than, you know, students in the classroom. But having said that, the students in the classroom are getting a degree, right? The students online, they're getting a certificate. A few of them are getting a degree, but most of them are getting a certificate. I think the next step is to break down those barriers by age, right? And I'm optimistic that at some point we will see the light and we will feel that the future is, as I mentioned in the book, post-generational, that we shouldn't be compartmentalizing people and telling them, you have to do this at that age, you have to do that at that age. So when you're 17, you pursue an undergraduate degree. When you are 28, you pursue a graduate degree and so on and so forth. But you're absolutely right. We change relatively slowly and uh, we need to um, you know, hurry up a little bit more. Well, I can tell you that if you're looking for a focus group, I'm your focus group because there are <laughs> so many times that I've looked at something like Wharton and I'm like, man, there are certain parts of that that are the perfect fit for me. But the thought of doing like a traditional graduate program or MBA or whatever it might be, none of those things really fit the mold that I want because I have a very specific trajectory that I want to go with my career. It's very diversified. There's a whole uh, litany of yeah. different interests that I have. So I look at that and it's like, yeah, but I feel like I'm going to be plugged into a hole and I'm going to have this MBA that's going to train me for the corporate world. But there are some classes and some knowledge that I could acquire that are invaluable for the portfolio that I want to build. And it sounds like you're, you're trying to create a program like, oh, here, this works perfectly for me. Yeah, but you know, I mean, what we need is innovation. There's no question about it. And, you know, I'm optimistic because I I am a strong believer in the market. Uh, I'm a strong believer in competition, right? I think competition is good. That's why we have Michelangelo, right? That's why we have all of the great artists in history because they were competing to be better than the previous artists, right? They were trying to um, improve on, on, on uh, how they conveyed ideas through art. And uh, I think uh, as we see more universities, as we see more entrepreneurs getting into the education space, there's gonna be more options for people. The supply is gonna get more diversified of different kinds of programs in different formats and so on. And then people like yourself will start making choices as to, oh, I want to do that, or I want to do that uh, other, other program. And the mechanism of the market, I think, will eventually select the ones that work and uh, eliminate the ones that don't work. And so for that reason, I think I'm reasonably optimistic, but we need to be entrepreneurial. We need to be innovative and uh, we need to uh, essentially abandon some assumptions that we've been holding for too long. So this is an, a question that I presume you're going to have an answer to, but we're just going to kind of hypothetically talk about this. Mm -hmm. If we're looking at a percentage of just industries in general, what percentage of industries in general do you think 10 or 15 years from now, it's still going to be, I start at the bottom and I become specialized and I'm a professional and I work towards the top because there's going to be some, but what percentage do you think you actually go get a degree and you stay in that path for your entire career? I think a, a very small percentage. So let's just think uh, about the exceptions, right? So the exceptions would be, hey, somebody wants to be a doctor 
you know, you really need to dedicate your life to that. You need to learn biology. You need to learn all of the uh, basic subjects and you need to do a residency. You need to acquire a lot of experience. Having said that, I think the job of the doctor will change dramatically, right? Especially with uh, artificial intelligence. You know, these days, you know, examining an x-ray is no longer done by human beings. I mean, you really use <clears throat> computers, artificial intelligence, because they are better at discerning patterns in, let's say, an x-ray of your leg, right? Uh, another category would be pilots, airline pilots. But even that one is also becoming so much more driven by technology, right? So the job of the pilot is also changing, right? And has already changed. But still, if you want to be a pilot, well, that's a career path. And, and you know exactly what you will need to do. But for most people, the vast majority of Americans and people around the world, jobs in the future are going to be such that, as you mentioned earlier, we're going to be more like generalists. We're going to be uh, learning a few things, knowing how to operate in a corporate context or an organizational context, and then moving from one thing to another in a much more fluid way, reinventing ourselves several times, perhaps even pursuing different careers, right? So I would say, if you're pressing me for a number, no more than 5% will be the exceptions. I think the rule is going to be 95% and is what we've been describing. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty big number. So I do um, have an answer I, for that. Yeah, I, I love it. Well, I've, clearly you thought about this and you've talked about it a time oh, or two. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. But yeah, the, the, the very first thing that came to mind, if somebody had asked me the same question, having barely any of the background that you do, as I would have said, I think that in general, the specialization of a doctor is going to stick. The specialization of a nurse, which is a similar field, is going to stick. But how they do it is going to totally change. But it's right? going to change. Not totally, but it's going to change. But having said that, I think doctors will need to make up their minds. Uh, people who want to be doctors, they need to make up their minds when they're relatively young because you need to um, you know, learn all of the basics. And the basics are becoming more difficult to learn because knowledge is expanding, right? Basic biology and all of these things. Um, but even those jobs are going to be mediated by technology to a much greater extent. I mean, these days, as you know, there are surgeons who don't operate on the patients. It's a robotic device that actually does the job. When I had my meniscus removed from my knee, the doctor told me it was a robot. It wasn't, I mean, he was overseeing the operation, the surgery, but it was a robot. And actually I was very happy because the robot is much more predictable, much more accurate and, and makes fewer mistakes than the human being. Yeah, robots don't have hangovers, right? No. They don't have to worry no. about the fight that they had with their spouse the night before they're doing surgery. Exactly um, right. And, you know, even though I don't have any doctors listening, I'm fascinated by how even in seemingly obvious fields where artificial intelligence can change everything, using a doctor as an example, I don't think that the, one of the, the core key traits or skills that most successful doctors have is their ability to recall extensive amounts of information on the fly impromptu to be like, well, I'm looking at this, this, and this, this is my diagnosis. That's, that skill is now obsolete. Uh, absolutely. But, but here's the thing. The thing is that medicine is not an exact science, right? This is what all doctors tell me. And there's so many things that could be, uh, you know, happening. Uh, although genetics is uh, helping, you know, um, I think the st uh, structure many medical decisions in a way that was not possible before. So medical experience, the experience of the doctor or the nurse, it's really, really important. But artificial intelligence, right, actually builds on experience. Artificial intelligence, as you know, you have to train the algorithm, right? And you train the algorithm with real data, right, from the past, with historical data. So it's actually the same kind of thinking. It's like, yes, a, a, a doctor who has been around for 40 years has all of this experience, has intuition about what may be wrong with a patient, right? Uh, but so does artificial intelligence. That's the thing. 
So what I want to do now is I want to start breaking this down. And I know that this is the opposite of what you're talking about, but I want to break this down into different generations using the, the current kind of language or understanding that we have of these different generations of breaking it more down to a perennial mindset and thinking, crap, given all of this, if I'm going to accept that this is reality, and by the way, if you're not, you really don't have any choice because progress is progress. But let's say that right now we're talking to somebody that has put $50,000 into their education and they're a junior learning computer science and coding in college. And they see ChatGPT doing all the coding for them. So we have this younger generation that hasn't even entered the workforce yet. Let's start talking about how do they manage this post-generational society? Well, uh, let me just first speak to the issue of, uh, you know, computer coding and programmers and all of that. And then we can get into the post-generational aspect of it. Uh, you see, computer science is one of the most uh, popular majors at American universities now. Uh, it is the most popular major, for example, at Princeton, which is supposed to be a liberal arts school. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, I don't know how many of those people are going to be employed in five or 10 years from now. I really don't know. Uh, I suspect a much smaller number than today for two reasons. One is that ChatGPT can do the programming, right? So I used to actually hire research assistants to do the programming for me. But now I can just, uh, you know, speak what I need to ChatGPT and I get the program, you know, for free, almost instantaneously, right? So, uh, and then the second thing is that uh, obviously there are some emerging markets like India where they're training 300,000 computer engineers every year, right? So I wonder whether this is a wise decision. However, I would say as a minor, in combination with another major, learning computer science is actually very, very useful. Because let's say you want to study medicine. Well, learning computer science will be uh, uh, useful. Let's say you want to be a pilot. Understanding computer science will be useful. Let's say you want to be an economist or you want to be whatever, right? Understanding computer science, what computers can do for you and the principles underlying how they work is going to be very helpful. So I think as a minor, computer science is going to be wonderful. But as a major, I think it's going to lead many people to a dead end because computers are going to program themselves in the near future. Yeah, I love the way that you put this. I'm going to spin it, not spin it. I'm going to, I'm going to change the terminology slightly and I want to see if you still agree. Sure. Right? The skill is going to be invaluable. The specialization is not, right? Correct. So for, to, me, I, to me, the, the way that I see it, and again, you're 100, you know, 100 miles ahead of me and really understanding this, but yeah. the, the, to me, the, the ultimate skill is understanding the intersection of all the right. different skills and using what's in the epicenter. So in that sense, learning computer science is invaluable, but not if it's your specialization in your job. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So the way I would put it is, you need to learn how to connect the dots. And learning some computer science is going to be useful for that, the same way that learning some history will be useful for that as well. Uh, so in other words, I think we're entering a phase in which it's too much specialization, unless, once again, you want to be a pilot or you want to be a doctor, is uh, not good. Uh, you need to be more of a generalist. That's where we're going. So now let's switch this from somebody that's just uh, either still in college and they're thinking, what am I supposed to do? My major is useless. I've wasted all this money, which I don't think is true at all. Again, it's about context. But now I've just settled into the workforce. I'm not at the very bottom rung. I'm beyond getting people coffee. Um, so I'm maybe two, three years into my career. And I'm realizing that the specialization that I've been developing, now what do I do? What, 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 well, what comes for me? You need to reinvent yourself. I, I think you need to uh, build on your strengths. If you have specialized in some area, you obviously have some strengths. So think about that as a foundation. 
for learning other things that will help you connect the dots, that will help you have a 360 degree view of what's going on. Um, so this uh, actually plays to the theme in the book and what we've been talking about uh, over the last uh, half hour or so, that what's important here is to essentially understand how things work and be able to contribute to solving problems. But being the specialist is not necessarily the best way, right? So if you're a specialist, well, it's easy. Then what you do, what you need to do is branch out, right? All right. So now I'm going to ask the same question. If anybody has a notice to, to peel the, the, the look at the wizard behind the curtain, you keep yeah. answering with the same answers. That's by design. Right. Because I want people to understand that it's not about where you are in your career or what generation you're in. We all have the same problems. But just right. for the second demonstration, one more time, I've now done my specialization or my craft for over 20 years. And I'm in a really good place where I'm regarded as an expert in my field. But I'm really concerned that my specialization is largely going to get taken over by artificial intelligence. What do I do in this circumstance? Well, look, I think at SAC, uh, this is a very realistic uh, scenario. I think podcast uh, hosts are going to be replaced by computers. But you see, I say this and I think about professors. I think professors may also be at least partially substituted by computers, unless, of course, you and I learn how to be better podcasters and how to be better professors by using technology. That is the trick. The trick is, yes, technological change is going to have a large impact on all sorts of jobs and occupations. That doesn't mean those jobs are going to disappear. There's going to be podcasters, right? What's going to be is different is that your job, the way you do your job, is going to become something completely different in the near future, right? That, I think, is what we need to understand. If you stay still, if you don't incorporate the new possibilities of technology, then you're not going to be the best podcaster in the world in five years from now. It's so interesting because I've never actually heard anybody say podcasters would get replaced. Um, I've talked to a lot of people about a lot of their different areas, especially in creative fields in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. But the idea of a podcaster being replaced, that's really interesting. And I, I mean, we're already seeing it happen with at least some of the tests. Well, um, but but uh, what, the, one of the things that I want to go a little bit deeper into is this idea that you said not all podcasters are going to go away. And no. one of the things that I've said, and I've gotten a little bit of pushback on it, and I still stand by it is that I think that artificial intelligence in just about any field, but especially creative fields, it's going to be the, extinct, the extinction of the mediocre. If you just kind of sort of do an okay job or it's one thing that you're okay at, artificial intelligence is going to be able to replace all of the okay podcasts. But then they're going to be the top echelon that I believe are going to be really, really hard to replace because of the level of nuance and empathy and just the humanness that they bring. Am I uh, totally off? No, I think that makes sense. I think uh, so. So I think I think we should maybe distinguish between two things in creative occupations, right? One mm -hmm. is productivity, right? Sheer productivity. So how many podcasts can you produce, right, a week? Uh, or if you're an artist, how many paintings can you produce a week, and so on and so forth? And I, or a professor, how many books you can write? I truly believe that for creative occupations, these new technologies, including AI, are going to increase our productivity. That's for sure. Uh, speaking for myself about my job as a researcher, I, I can I can get information so much more quickly now. I can acquire knowledge so much more quickly. I can connect the dots much faster than before, right? But the second thing is, I also believe that it's going to make all of us, not just uh, the elite, more creative, mm. I believe. Because, again, it's going to enhance our ability to connect the dots, to see what today we don't see, right, in terms of interconnections. This is an interconnected world, right? And as time goes by, it's becoming even more interconnected. 
And I think AI uh, essentially, you know, supplements our ability to see the connections, right? Which is the argument that you just made. I completely agree with that. Mm, I love that take on it. Uh, and the, I think that the, the next thing that I want to dig into a little bit further is, and we've talked a little bit about the, the value of communication. Doesn't matter if you're a doctor, doesn't matter if you're a, an accountant, doesn't matter if you're a writer, if you're a research assistant. I think that the, the future of our relationship with technology is our ability to ask good questions. Absolutely. I, I think that prompt engineer is going to be an entire field. Oh, absolutely. I can, I can give you a quote for that. Pablo Picasso, the famous painter, in the 1960s, he said, computers are useless. They can only give you answers. Mm. Now, this is starting to change now with AI. But he was absolutely correct. What really matters is to ask the right question. It's very difficult. You see, sometimes I give my students, as part of a final exam, not a question, but rather I tell them, formulate your own question and then provide an answer to that question. And mm. I tell them, Show to me how well you know the material by asking a very good question to begin with, right? It's a very tough assignment for a final exam. It's very it, tough. It's so, it's so funny that you bring that up because this is an area of really, really deep interest to me. And I re it's not something that I talk about that much, um, but a big part of my coaching program when I'm working with my clients is helping them understand the value of asking better questions. So they'll ask me a question and I never answer it. I drive them crazy. I'm like, no. What if we ask this question instead and it helps them learn and formulate how to ask a better question? What yeah. I have not found to this day is somebody that can answer this. How do you teach somebody to ask better questions? What, well, how do you break that down? This is a really hard question to answer. It's, uh, it's really, really hard. And I think uh, that um, goes directly at our ability as human beings to problematize the world. So let me explain. is to identify what the problem is right? Or what the interesting problem to work on is, right? So, uh, but that's, I think, what uh, differentiates people who, as you said, are mediocre in their fields from people who become the elite, right? They're the leaders in the field. So an architect, let's just uh, think about an architect, right? So um, there's a lot of architects, very capable, who can build a house, right? But there's only a few architects who are saying, okay, what is the problem that I'm trying to solve? So I want the people who are going to be using this building to feel better about being there or to be more productive or to uh, have a pleasant uh, space or what have you. So they're problematizing the situation, right? Because, you know, it's relatively straightforward to design a building and then make it happen, right? Uh, but if you ask a very interesting question about what is it that you want to accomplish, right? Then that's what uh, you know. If you answer that successfully, that's what makes for a for a brilliant architect, as opposed to just a good architect. I have spent almost ten years now raving about how much I love my topo mat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core Three Sixty. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for
for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. I have a feeling that this could become a seven-part series because this right here is just the epicenter of stuff I'm so passionate about. And yeah. in the, my, I call it my former life, which is not totally true, but in my my former profession before I made this pivot and transition to coaching and podcasting and writing, um, I was a film and television editor for 20 plus years working on, you know, big number one TV shows. And what I found is that often the, the, the best results that I got in putting together a scene or accomplishing the notes or whatever the feedback was from a director or producer was predicated on the quality of my question to them because yeah, they would give me notes and their feedback was largely really, really bad. But they had a point. It was my job to figure out what's the note underneath the note. So you say, well, uh, this scene is too slow and this is out of order. And I'm it's like, stop giving me problems. Why don't you tell me what the result is that you want? And I'm the one that can find what the problems are and solve it. And when I would ask different questions, I would get much, much better answers, which got me a much better result. So my argument is. That I believe that – and I've had a couple of people already that have disagreed with me and they're saying I'm too optimistic. So I want to know how, how overly optimistic I am and how much I need to be brought back down to earth. But right now, I am not terribly fearful of complex problem-solving creative crafts being replaced anytime soon because of the value of interpreting the note underneath the note. And this applies far beyond – editing or filmmaking would apply to architects or anything else, those that collaborate with others on a vision. How, how quickly do you think those that are complex problem solvers are going to be replaced by technology? So that's a good question. And I think AI will get there. Um, AI will be in a position to ask good questions. But once again, I think the combination of the human and the machine will probably be superior. Let me just give you another example here, which is the CEO of a company with 100,000 employees. There's no way that person can know everything that is going on, right? So typically, a CEO of a big organization is a good one if uh, he or she or they ask the right questions of their subordinates, right? If they don't ask the right questions, then they're not going to know what's going on. And it's going to be very difficult for them to make strategic decisions as to what to do. Um, so this happens in, in, in many walks of life. I mean, asking the right questions is always really important. By the way, for people who may be listening who are religious, right? Um, asking the right question is really important as well, mm-hmm. right? Think about, uh, think about how, you know, uh, the U.S. is one of the most religious countries in the world, as you know, and uh, how important it is if you want to, you know, essentially be at peace with uh, your religion or what it demands on you. 
to be asking yourself the right questions. It's not just about answers. It's actually about asking the right questions. And many sermons at church or synagogue or mosque, they are about asking the right questions. Yeah, I love this. We're, we're, we're going to keep going uh, deeper and deeper into this because I know mm-hmm. that um, problem solving is a, a big uh, area of this book. And I want to throw in something that's a, a little bit of uh, kind of my, my viewpoint on life, whether or not you know it applies to anything we're talking about or not. Um, but one of my discoveries that I found uh, earlier in life, it was always about I need to do everything I can to eliminate the problems. Then I can relax. Then I've achieved success, you know, whatever it might be. And the realization that I had as I've gotten older is that the quality of my life is dictated by the quality of the problems that are in my life and my interest in solving them. So I went from trying to eliminate problems to I want as many problems in my life that I cannot wait to wake up in the morning and solve. So I want you to talk a little bit more about that. But then even deeper is this idea of dissolving problems, which is a new concept I've never heard about before. Yeah. Well, so so let's begin with the uh, problem issue. So uh, if somebody tells you, I don't have any problems to solve. They're probably setting the bar too low. They're not being ambitious enough. And uh, and that's a pity because they're wasting their talents, right? So let's say they do that at work or whatever. Uh, so that's a really, really big, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think, uh, issue for people who essentially, they're problem-free, right? Well, they're wasting their minds, right? They're wasting their time, probably. Now, this whole idea about solving versus uh, dissolving versus solving problems, right? So this came uh, from a former colleague of mine at the Wharton School who passed away, unfortunately, like 10 years ago or 15 years ago uh, at uh, age 92 or 93, uh, Russell Ackoff, who was the uh, the founder of systems thinking. And what he said was, look, I mean, there's two ways of addressing problems. Once you have defined the problem, once you've asked the right question. One is to look for a Band-Aid or for a patch, and that's solving a problem, right? But you're not really making the problem go away. You make the problem go away when you dissolve it, right? And uh, I don't know whether you want me to go into the example that he always used, which was this famous strike in London, uh, you know, uh, and the problems with the buses, the double-deckers. Oh, yeah, this is totally relevant. Go, go as long as you need to. Yeah, I mean, so there was this big uh, strike in the 1950s in London. And at the time, there were two people staffing uh, each of those uh, double-decker buses. There was the driver, and then there was the person who would collect the fare. Right. And the person who would collect the fare would be on the bus selling the tickets. Right. And uh, there was this big, uh, you know, conflict between them because they were accusing each other during peak time that uh, they, were not, they were not working you know, in the right way. The driver was going too fast, for example. And therefore, the, uh, the one who was selling the tickets didn't have enough time in between stops to sell all of the tickets to everybody who was boarding the bus. Right. And so they tried all sorts of things uh, to solve the problem right? Uh, Slowing down the buses, uh, you know, doing all sorts of things. But they were only able to dissolve the problem when, and this was Ras Akov who was advising them, who was doing consulting for the London Transportation Authority, when he realized the person selling the tickets during peak time shouldn't be on the bus. This person should be at the bus stop on the ground selling tickets, right? Which today would be the analog of having a vending machine for tickets, uh, or your phone, right? You see what I'm saying? But back in the 1950s, they couldn't figure it out. And Rasakov said, you're trying to solve the problem. You're not trying to dissolve it. So let's try to make the problem go away. And all you need to do is just put that person 
at the, on the stop, not throughout the day, right? But rather only during peak time. So this is an example that I explain in the book. I think it's a beautiful illustration of the problem. Yeah, and I, I want to go deeper into this, and I want to use a couple of different analogies to, to sure. connect this to what's going on in the, the world today. Um, my interpretation of this is something I've been talking about for years in general, both in creative pursuits, but also specifically uh, with the way that the, the medical industry is designed, and that I'm very disenchanted with the Western medical system. And I've talked with a multitude of different uh, physicians and professionals that feel the same way, because the way that you're trained in medical school, diagnose the disease and treat the symptoms, but nobody's mm -hmm. looking at the root cause. And essentially, mm -hmm. this is different terminology for the same thing. Either here's a pill to solve the symptom, or we find the root cause and we dissolve the problem altogether, right? Yeah. And from, from the creative world, I feel like this, again, is the difference between the note or the note underneath the note, right? Treating the symptom is the scene is too long, let's make it shorter. Dissolving the problem is, well, this scene is too long because you don't understand who this character is because you didn't establish that four scenes before. If I'm invested in this character's journey, this scene actually needs to right. get longer. Note, right. note underneath the note, right? So now that we better understand that, I want you to put yourself in the, the shoes of being a mediator, being an arbitrator. I don't know how familiar you are with the specifics right now, but mm -hmm. as you may know, just from you know reading the basic news, Hollywood is essentially burning to the ground as we speak. It is a multitude of, of unions and industries that have said this model no longer works. What are the questions that you would have each of the parties asking each other so that we can dissolve this problem rather than solve it. Because frankly, we solve, quote unquote, this problem every three years and we come back and things are worse than they were before. So help me dissolve what's going on in the entertainment industry instead of just solve it. Well, I think I think we need to realize that uh, the way in which uh, the Internet has been developing requires uh, some serious adjustments. Right, because I think uh, the negative effects are uh, out there for everyone to see. For example, polarization in politics. Well, a lot of that has been because of social media uh, and the way in which social media are being exploited by people who are spreading fake news, for example, and so on and so forth. Uh, but when it comes to this uh, strike in Hollywood, if I understand it correctly, what's going on is that obviously uh, they're seeing that AI uh, so initially it was a streaming, but now it's AI. Uh, it's essentially using um, the fruit of uh, a lot of people's work, like photographs and uh, what have you, text, to train the algorithms, right? Uh, without paying for the you know use of uh, those images or that, that text, that content. And therefore, there's a lot of dissatisfaction because obviously they're not concerned about the situation today. They're concerned about what may happen five years from now when AI is even more you know, dominant than it is today. And so I think, uh, you know, we need to make a lot of adjustments there. Uh, and we, we need to have some regulation. You see, uh, free markets don't work by themselves. They work because we have rules and norms of behavior. And right now, I don't think we have anything of that sort because no government is willing to get into this, at least yet, when it comes to AI. So I think we need to step in and we need to uh, regulate what's going on so that uh, the people who are the content creators actually get the rewards that they deserve. So what are some of the questions that we can be asking so we can problem solve collectively as human beings rather than I'm on this side and you want this and I'm not giving it to you and I'm on this side and screw you, we're taking your houses, blah, right? That's well, where I we think, are right now. I think the most fundamental question, and I'll give you an illustration from the past on this. The most fundamental question is, 
how is AI? AI is a powerful tool that is going to make our lives better in many ways. How are we going to be able to accelerate innovation in AI? Some people say, don't interfere. I disagree. I think we need to have some norms, some rules, some you know structure there. And this is why in the absence of those, we're having these strikes in Hollywood, right? And the um, you know the uh, examples from the past is you remember when we had uh, videotape recorders? Oh sure, right. That's how I taught myself to edit two VHS players. Right. So it's very it was very chaotic at the beginning until there were some standards, right, industry wide, and then really it uh, it grew and it made it possible for people to enjoy movies and all sorts of content at home which before was uh, impossible to do, right? So you need order, you need uh, norms, you need rules in markets, uh, not just in schools, you need them in markets as well. And there's no such thing as the completely free market like the jungle, right? And that doesn't work normally. And I think it would be better for AI development if we actually intervene right now and brought, brought in some rules and some norms of behavior. And I think that would satisfy many of the people who are now striking in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this then, as a, as a professor that is not only um, not banning it, but actually encouraging students to use chat TPT, because you see that learning the skill of interacting with the technology, knowing that you're very much embracing it, what are the norms that you would create? The norms that I would create is, number one, that I want them to exercise their creativity. I want them to understand, my students to understand that ChatGPT is not just, uh, you know, you just don't just tell tell the program, hey, I need to write this paper. Why don't you do it for me? Right? Mm -hmm. That's not the way it works. You really need to be, as we were discussing earlier, actively in communication, right, with the computer, right? You need to follow up. You need to be very precise in terms of the questions that you're asking so that you can actually, in the end, have an output that is, you know, much more than just as a result of, uh, you know, blind computing power, right? Um, so I'm, I'm going to emphasize this to them, that they need to exercise their own intelligence as human beings to make the most out of a technology such as ChatGPT. But I certainly want them to use it because everybody's going to be using it. So what's the point of my telling them, no, you cannot use ChatGPT? That is yeah. absolutely counterproductive. And this is, this is an argument that I've gotten into more than once with people via social media, via my newsletter and otherwise. Um, right. Where they're like, no, we can't let this technology in our industry. It's going to take over. It's going to take our jobs. Whether or not that's true is irrelevant. Progress is progress. You're not stopping progress. You can either embrace it and you can ingratiate yourself. And like you said, it's not the technology that's going to take over. It's the people that are using the technology that are the ones that are going to take over. But there's still this ingrained mindset of, no, we need things to go back to the way they were. Right. And we need to abolish all of this and we need to make sure that it's it's regulated and outlawed. I mean, what do you think the percentage chances are of any of that happening? Well, I'm not sure I understand your question. Um, so maybe maybe it would be a, a good idea if you rephrased it. Sure. Right? It's funny because here I am talking about the value of questions that I'm asking about. Well, <laughs> yeah, because I'm not sure exactly what assumptions you're making. Can you reformulate it? Just Sure. Uh, yeah. So the what do you think the the chances are? that we're going to be able to regulate AI in such a way that we just are not allowed to use it in creative pursuits because oh, it no, might no, replace no. us. I think it, that would be a mistake. And yeah. of course, look, I mean, AI will have some applications that are going to be very negative, like in war, right? Uh, or for, uh, for example, spreading fake news and so on and so forth. So 
any technology can be used for, for good or for evil. There's no question about it. But that's precisely why we also need some order and some norms, right? It's not just so that the good things come out, but also that we, you know, um, kind of uh, put some constraints on some of the negative consequences of all of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's, it will be extremely important to perhaps take a, a, take a break from this, um, you know, incredible race that is going on in terms of uh, seeing who, who develops the best uh, AI tool. You know, companies, countries are racing right now, trying to be the first to uh, accomplish uh, certain milestones in the development of AI. I think we need to take a step back and we need to think about what is it that we're doing. Yeah, I completely agree. And I've, uh, I've made this joke more than once uh, that when you're asking an AI, quote, expert to explain the future of the industry, it's the same as asking a dog to do calculus. Nobody knows. Like to, to prognosticate and pretend that we know exactly where this is going, I think is virtually impossible, especially with the speed that it's moving. Um, so what uh, basically the, the place that I want to leave this, I want to come back now to kind of the, the core of our conversation about this perennial mindset and seeing these different phases of life. There's one phase of life that I don't think we've covered quite as much that I think for a lot of people that are getting close to it are really, really scared by it. And those that have a long ways don't even know what it looks like. And that's the scary word, retirement. What does retirement even mean nowadays? How do we define that? Well, look, uh, it's a great question because 40% of Americans who retire, they go back to work eventually. And 52% of Americans who retire early, they also go back to work eventually. So retirement is this uh, 19th century invention. Uh, it, it's supposed to be nirvana. It's supposed to be heaven, right? It's like you're supposed to work very hard uh, for a number of years. And your reward is not uh, that you will have a job that will be uh, you know, satisfac satisfying to you, but rather your reward is going to be that at some point you no longer will have to work. And hey, for certain occupations like construction or very physical manual work, uh, that is important, right? Because you cannot be a construction worker forever, right? At some point you need to retire. But the idea that you will retire and not do anything, uh, I think is uh, is just a contrary, I think, to human nature, actually. Human beings like to get things done. They like to be relevant in the world. We like to be social. So retirement is one of these things that was invented. If you remember, it was invented to uh, be able to keep the working class under control because at the time, 120 years ago, there were all of these movements like communism and socialism. And, uh, you know, business leaders and politicians were a little bit scared about them. And that's why they invented retirement, right? As a way to, um, okay, uh, kind of, uh, you know, keep things under control. Uh, but I think we have taken this retirement idea to such an extreme, uh, conveying to people that that's what they should aspire to, that that's the goal in life. I think it's uh, very misleading. Uh, I think uh, retirement is completely oversold as an idea. Yeah, and uh, the, the the lesson that I learned, I mean, I've, I've learned a lot even today, but the lesson that I've learned and learning so much more about this is I just assumed retirement is what it is. This is just the way that we've always done it until I realized, oh, this is a construct. And the construct is that's what keeps us working for the same company because they're contributing to the 401k. Now I've got the golden handcuffs. And like uh, we've talked about, you know, waiting for that that bliss in the end when I can, quote unquote, start my life. Right. right. And that's just an absolute myth. And also there's so much statistics that prove that once people retire and they no longer have a purpose, no longer have work to do, they die yeah. faster. Oh, absolutely. Your health suffers. 
And also, so now don't get me wrong though. So I'm not saying here that people shouldn't save for retirement. They should, because mm. you never know. I mean, maybe you actually would like to take a break, right? Um, but think about retirement also not as the end destination. It's not the terminus. You may retire and then realize like nearly half uh, of the American population does that that's not the thing that you want to do and you go back to work. And then, you know, when you are like uh, no longer physically or mentally fit, then you're going to retirement again. So I think we need to change our priors, the assumptions that we've been making. First and foremost, that retirement is supposed to be heaven, which it's not. Right. Yeah. For me, I always think about retirement as this is the moment in which I've achieved financial freedom and I can say no to anything that I never want to do again. Whether mm -hmm. that exactly. happens at 45 or 65 or whenever, it's all about, I know whatever somebody says, well, when do you think you will retire? And I'm like, I'm never retiring. Like, I love the work that I do and I'm always looking to do different and varied things. So I would just assume I'm going to do that until the day that I die, uh, God willing and my health willing. Um, but for me, retirement is I can say no to anything that I never want to do again. Um, so having said that, the place that I want to leave us, because I know that you're a very, very busy man and, uh, you know, running this entire school and uh, everything else that's going on. Um, let's assume that nobody had been listening to this conversation so far and they're just diving in now. And we need to do a super quick summarization of what, in your own words, are the most important takeaway from your book, The Perennials. How do we summarize for summarize this for people succinctly? I think the summary is very simple. Just say we should be very optimistic about the future, but only if we change the way in which we structure our lives. If we remove all of those constraints uh, that we have inherited from the past, there's a world of opportunity out there. Technological change, economic change in the world, I think, is opening up a lot of opportunities. But if we don't change, if we don't reinvent ourselves, if we don't learn how to reinvent ourselves, we're not going to be able to benefit from this entire revolution. I think that's the central message of the book. And I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, having said that, anybody that wants to dig into this book, they want to dive deeper into your work and all of the impact that you're having on society and technology and otherwise, where is the best place to send people? I think the best uh, is uh, for people to go to LinkedIn and to uh, get connected to me, and then we can exchange uh, messages. I promise that I will reply to every message that I get. And, uh, you know, I frequently post things so we can keep each other abreast of what's going on. I love it. Well, I'm definitely going to be following that advice myself because I'm a big fan of the work that you're doing um, and want to continue following uh, what you're doing. It's just for me alone, this was very educational today. So I hope that it was for the audience as well. And I can't thank you enough for sharing your immensely valuable time and expertise with me. So thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I love these conversations. Thank you, Zach. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. 
When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.